Valerie's my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the Soundtrack Series, stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi, and I saw White and Gold. Okay, I know you don't care at all. I barely do. I just felt like I had to say that. No, you know what? I take it back. I do barely care, because this whole thing was fascinating. This surefire indicator that we don't all see or receive color the same way. How cool is that? to know. I mean, we, of course, took a fun kind of Bill Nye learning experience and turned it into another reason to scream, you're stupid, at strangers on the internet, but the internet wouldn't be the internet without that. But anyway, it's proof, I think, that we don't all perceive colors the same way. The old joke about sitting around totally baked and asking, what if the color blue to you isn't the color blue to me? Well, now, what if indeed? Oh, and speaking of blue, did you know that there is no evidence in ancient times of the color blue being a color people could see or identify? I guess the sky in ancient writing is described as white. The ocean in, say, the Odyssey is described as dark, but no blue. I can't even imagine a world with no blue. What would nearly every app logo look like if we had no color blue? You know what I was thinking, by the way? of other blue things I could have said there, you know, like, what if there's no blue? There would be no Blue Man Group or no Eiffel 65 songs. And you know what? That's probably okay. Anyway, enough about colors. Coming up later on the show, the writer and New York City urban folk hero, the roving typist C.D. Hermelin, tells us how Weezer is the girl who never let him down. So I was 14, and they were my first. I bought Weezer t-shirts and a Weezer lunchbox and learned Weezer songs on guitar, songs I would eventually play in a Weezer cover band that developed into a band that played songs that sounded a lot like Weezer songs. But first. That position, Mr. Scott, would not only be unavailing, but also undignified. Oh, good night, Leonard Nimoy. This was a hard one, especially in our house. My boyfriend, Pete, is a big Star Trek fan and especially a fan of Leonard Nimoy and of Spock. And I had bought him. Last year, I had gone to Austin and there's this woman there that sells outside, like in one of those, you know, outdoor bazaar kind of things, her own nightlights that she makes. And one time I had bought an R2-D2 one and that is in our bathroom. But then when I went back, I bought Pete a Spock one. So it's just like, it's a ceramic nightlight and Spock is just stamped onto it. And Pete would have that in his office where our cat Marlo would sit so that Marlo would have a nightlight when he would, you know, be in the office at night. And then last year in April, we had to put Marlo to sleep. But the nightlight was still on the wall and just kind of this light that represented Marlo. And that's where he used to sit. And then, of course, Leonard Nimoy dies on February 27th, which was, oddly enough, Marlo's birthday. And now Pete doesn't know what to think when he looks at that nightlight. So it's 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 kind of tough. A sad day. And I have to be honest, I wasn't a real Star Trek fan at all. But Leonard Nimoy still managed to factor into my life, too, and leave a mark. So when I was in fifth grade, that was the year that I was finally eligible to be in the Bushgill Elementary School talent show because that was only for fifth and sixth graders. And 
I was so excited. But at the time, I was taking piano lessons, and I could, quote unquote, play the piano. I can't. I mean, I can't. You heard me a couple of weeks ago, just kind of plunking out. I won't back down. I can't play the piano. Not really. I am no Ferrante and Teicher. But it's like, there were a couple of songs I could sort of pound out. And one of them was the theme from Star Wars. So that's what I was going to do for the talent show. I was going to play the theme from Star Wars on piano. Now, my dad had this idea that I should play it, but I should wear his blue Spock sweater and Spock ears to do so, to play the theme from Star Wars on piano. I love my dad, but that is so not funny. But he got his way for as much as I protested. And so there I was at the talent show playing the Star Wars theme dressed as Spock from Star Trek, a billion nerds the world over experiencing chest pressure and shortness of breath as it was happening. And then to top it all off, to go from bad to worse to naked in gym class. At the end, my dad made me say, beam me up, Scotty, into the microphone, which Spock never said. And for the record, neither did Kirk. Not in that exact way. It's a Luke, I'm your father kind of thing. Oh, that talent show. Why I didn't just two-step to Lisa Lisa, I'll never know. So yeah, Leonard Nimoy was there for that part of my life in a way. But, you know, speaking of Spock and less than stellar musical moments, hey, gimmick albums, huh? I know. Oh, that's a phenomenon I never quite understood. I mean, from the viewpoint of the person producing it and selling it, I get it. It will make money. It's the why people buy it. It's the why does it make money part that I'm a bit fuzzy on. The gimmick album mystifies me. When someone becomes cult famous in some kind of way, and then our next step is to go, you know, we should document them singing. Why? Why is this a thing? Or why is it a thing we so easily let happen? Look, it's one thing when it's like, well, Nichelle Nichols put out an album once she was famous for playing Uhura, but... She had been singing with Duke Ellington and Lionel Hampton way before she was ever on TV. So not that. More like Don Johnson, Shaq, Paris Hilton, Robert Downey Jr., Bruce Willis, Steven Seagal, Terry Bradshaw. I was, you know what? I was going to say Eddie Murphy, too, but I did like Party All the Time, though that was basically Rick James. It's all in his book. So Eddie, not Eddie. Anyway, someone gets famous for doing one thing, and suddenly here they are doing this totally unrelated thing. Rodney Dangerfield rapping, The Rock acting, Jennifer Lopez selling decorative throw pillows at Target or Kohl's or whatever. You know what, though? How come we never see actors, musicians, creatives as athletes? We put athletes in movies and music, but it's rarely, if ever, the other way around. And I don't mean in a battle of the network stars kind of way. I mean legitimately, now batting for Cleveland, the shortstop, number 32, Kanye West. Kanye West, shortstop, number 32. That's how the announcer at Yankee Stadium always used to say it, so that's my frame of reference. Anyway, thing is, it's not entirely fair for me, though, to lump Leonard Nimoy and his albums in with Don Johnson heaving out heartbeat, or even with Shatner creepily speak singing anything. Leonard Nimoy, in addition to his vocal sample being included in What's On Your Mind by Information Society, released five studio albums. And only in a short time, between 1967 and 1970. Not for anything, but that was more than Amy Winehouse. And, all right, if that's insensitive and not fair because of Amy Winehouse's untimely death, okay, Leonard Nimoy 
has also, to date, released more studio albums than Lady Gaga. Look it up. Leonard Nimoy's foray into music came about like this. Basically, Dot Records, which is a subsidiary of Paramount at the time, approached the producers of Star Trek about Leonard Nimoy recording an album because they could see that it had that Star Trek had a strong cult following despite low ratings and they wanted to capitalize on that following and especially on the Spock character. Okay, am I the only one who wishes that someone had also done this with Jack Webb on Dragnet or the guy who played Gunther Tootie on Car 54, Where Are You? Oh, good, they did. The first album was Leonard Nimoy Presents Mr. Spock's Music from Outer Space, and it had songs like Music to Watch Space Girls By, an instrumental that sounds like the music in every eating in a nice restaurant scene in 1960s cinema, and Where is Love from Oliver. So... It was like that. And the next was The Two Sides of Leonard Nimoy. That was the one with the ballad of Bilbo Baggins. Then The Way I Feel. Then The Touch of Leonard Nimoy. And finally, The New World of Leonard Nimoy. And you know, he does all right. He holds his own, particularly on the covers. Both sides now, everybody's talking, I walk the line. The way he does these songs, are it's pretty straightforward. There's not a ton of production. They kind of sound like the quiet guy in accounting who no one knew had such a nice voice singing karaoke at the company Christmas party. That's most of these albums. But that's charming. Mostly because it is pretty bare and simple and not trying to be rock god Leonard Nimoy or lyrical gangster Leonard Nimoy. Not trying to be anything other than Leonard Nimoy as Leonard Nimoy singing as Leonard Nimoy would sing. And now after he's gone, it's kind of nice that these albums are just another part of Leonard Nimoy that's left behind. He was Spock. He was an accomplished photographer. He directed Three Men and a Baby, Never Forget. And he put out five albums. Gimmick albums like that may not always get the critical acclaim or even have a ton of artistic integrity, but after someone so universally beloved is gone, I don't know, it's just kind of nice that they put out an album or five. It's just one more thing we have to remember them. Though I do wonder if I'm going to be saying this when Bruce Willis is gone. I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from up and down, and still somehow, it's clouds illusions I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. I kind of wish he'd covered Life on Mars. How great would that have been? Or Space Oddity? Or changes, anything Bowie, really. I just feel like Leonard Nimoy singing David Bowie is what we have wanted all along but have been too afraid to ask for. Okay, our story for this episode is from New York City urban folk hero C.D. Hermelin. C.D. Hermelin is known as the roving typist, a writer who travels around New York with his typewriter and will write you, a complete stranger, a story just for you. More on him and the film that was made about him at rovingtypist.com, but here he is telling us how girls may come and go, but Weezer is forever. I, uh, I fell in love with Weezer before I fell in love with any girl. Before Weezer, my favorite music was uh, Counting Blue Cars by Dishwalla. Um, the cleaned up version 
of, the, of Grease Lightning. <laughs> the brass band break in the middle of Yellow Submarine by the Beatles. And uh, the entire output of the Aquabats, which is a ska band that pretends to be superheroes fighting evil, and sometimes they sing songs about chicken wings. So <laughs> I was poised and, um, and ready for a personal music revolution. Weezer wasn't love at first sight, though. Uh, the first time I heard them, I was too young and naive, and I thought they had a disappointing lack of horns or <laughs> references to activities I enjoyed, like counting blue cars <laughs> or pretending to be in a submarine. <laughs> but the light shone through eventually, and thanks to an incredibly well-curated Napster mix CD that alternated between the natural track listing of Weezer's Blue Album and then mixed in such punk and ska greats as No Effects, Slow Gherkin, MXPX, and Less Than Jake. It was like a damn breaking, like the birth of Christ for the Western understanding of time. My life bifurcated on the moment between it not being a Weezer fan and then accepting them into my heart. <laughs> So I was 14, and they were my first. I bought Weezer t-shirts and a Weezer lunchbox and learned Weezer songs on guitar, songs I would eventually play in a Weezer cover band that developed into a band that played songs that sounded a lot like Weezer songs. <laughs> I joined Weezer's online message board community and commented endlessly on Weezer lyrics and contributed very earnestly to conspiracy theories about what happened to Jason Cropper, the guitarist who played the finger pick riffs on the Blue Album, but never went on tour. <laughs> I even harbored a desire to write and perhaps star in. I mean, who knows if someone asked me. I mean, sure. A Weezer jukebox musical about a guy named Jonas who just wants his band to make it. And if any of you get the Jonas reference, you're right along with me here. Okay. <laughs> so being a fan, being like a true blue devotee of something is perhaps one of the greatest relationships that one can enter into at any stage of your life. It demands very little. Just a liberal helping of blind devotion and a heart and mind working in tandem to discover and retain as much information as possible about something, which sounds like a lot. But fandom is a ticket. Uh, to another dimension of like-minded beings, folks that wake up in the morning to the same songs, whose Internet Explorer homepage is also Weezer.com, <laughs> who can delight in minutia like the fact that Scott Schreiner, Weezer's current bassist, played bass in Vanilla Ice's touring band. <laughs> But the best thing about belonging to a group of fans are moments like the first day of high school sophomore year when a girl named Arielle came through the door with chestnut hair and a sly, close-lipped smile, wearing a light blue Weezer t-shirt featuring two dancing girls drawn by Adrian Tomine. The Weezer shirt showed unequivocally that she was a kindred spirit. We were linked. It was the perfect way to start a conversation for a guy like me who embodies the definition of gawky. So you like Weezer? She did. <laughs> She knew lots and lots of things about Weezer, stuff I didn't know, like B-sides and the story of Michael and Carly, two fans who were themselves immortalized in a B-side. They were the voices of the girls in the sweater song and started the very first Weezer fan club. On their way to a Weezer show in 1995, they died in a car accident. Ariel told me the story as I walked her home one day, and it felt like she was telling me a secret. We even graduated to topics that uh, weren't Weezer. We both liked Stephen King and thought the Southern California suburbia where we grew up was like totally fake. <laughs> we bonded over the difficulty of our AP classes and started a notebook that we passed over the course of the day. She got a, a boyfriend, a drummer in the school jazz band where she played saxophone. 
I got myself a girlfriend that wasn't her. We broke up and got back together a lot. That sophomore year was a strange one. It's really surprisingly well documented. For some reason, I had forgotten that my first instinct online, beyond the Weezer message boards and sharing Harry Potter fan theories, <laughs> was to bear all in an anonymous online space. I journaled under many different names, different publishing platforms. In the background of all of this was one of the most turbulent and sad episodes of my high school life. I was being bullied because a large part of the student body at my high school took my bowling and Hawaiian button-up shirt collection and general awkwardness as a sure sign of homosexuality. I was chased home from school daily and hit in the back with D batteries, which is the most expensive and largest of all the batteries. <laughs> and my school's administration weirdly didn't want to do anything about it. Looking back and reading all of the live journaling and dead journaling and regular journaling, I realized that I just never wrote a word about it. I've written about other things, and I might have written about it in the journal I kept with Ariel, but I can't remember what was in there. I did write about Weezer, though. And Weezer led me onward to other bands like Ozma and OK Go and Jets to Brazil and Jimmy Eat World and Rooney and the White Stripes and Phantom Planet and the Hives and the Smiths. I mean, it's another thing that fandom creates, a space to get lost in. An entire world of liner notes and bands that sound like Radiohead, but they're like mixed with Joy Division. <laughs> Record store debates and album rankings, and, and inside that world, there's a lot of talk about regretting not going after the girl. In one of my bouts of singlehood, after watching Amelie with Arielle at her place and talking about how her boyfriend thought school dances were stupid, I hatched a plan. <laughs> As a member of our school student government, I decided that the best way to show my love and devotion to Ariel was to get the winter formal named after a Weezer song and somehow convince her that it wouldn't be cheating on her boyfriend to come with me to the dance. In this, I was actually successful. <laughs> Ariel decided to go to the dance with me. Her drummer boyfriend decided I was harmless. And I had done an okay job in convincing myself my actions were honorable and not a ploy to steal her away. At the winter formal naming meeting, which is a real thing that happened, I gave an impassioned speech in favor of only in dreams. Never mentioning it was a Weezer song. It beat out, heaven is a place on earth. Yeah. To this day, I'm very proud of this accomplishment. It's an odd footnote in my high school history. The only in Dream's winter formal invitations were two clear pieces of plastic bound together around blue and silver glitter stars. The invitation script was silver. I still have mine tucked into my sophomore yearbook. The only problem was, RL's boyfriend decided a dance named after a Weezer song couldn't be all bad, so they decided to go together, leaving me to ask my ex-girlfriend to go with me. At the dance, they played mostly music that was not Weezer. 50 Cent, I'm sure. Beyonce, because some things never change. Ariel and her boyfriend never made it. They got into a fender bender instead. I danced with my ex-girlfriend, who uh, became my girlfriend again not long after, for the fourth or their fifth time. However, they did play only in dreams. It must have been the DJ's decision because I don't think anyone in the student government actually listened to it considering it felt jarringly out of place played over the announcement of winter formal court. I laughed a lot, but anyway, after sophomore year, uh, Ariel disappeared sort of literally. Even her drummer boyfriend didn't know where she'd gotten to. 
I'm not in contact with her now. But when I listen to Weezer, it's not her that I think of, or not just her, it's, it's all of it. All of the music that I got to listen to because this band came along and I fell in love with them and they saved me from the perils of ska music and, <laughs> and they gave me solace when I needed it the most. Thank you. D. Hermelin, yes. And you know what? I never went to the prom, but I had very strong opinions about the prom song my senior year. I told anyone who would listen that it should be Comanche from Pulp Fiction, mostly because I wanted to see Bring Out the Gimp 1996 printed on souvenir glassware. I was 18 and so not funny. And that's it. That's our episode for this go-round. This has been the Soundtrack Series. And you know what? We do a trivia, a prize giveaway thing at the live shows. And, you know, why should you guys in Denver miss out? So I will send a super awesome prize to the first person who tweets at us what song this is a looped sample of. Title and artist. Tweet your answer to at soundtrkseries and the first person who gets it wins it. I won't tell you what the prize is, but I will say that I mentioned it earlier in this episode. Slipped it right in there. Oh, the mysteries! Anyway, as always, you can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, in the eyes of a child, and of course, right here where you found us. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening.